so right now we are in the middle of this journey of chapter 29. And every time we move forward in the journey, it is very important to take note of the larger picture because what can happen is we get caught in the details and we forget what it's all about. So we hear about crushing and shattering and we think that that's the point. That's not the point. The point is feeling joy. The point is experiencing a feeling heart that feels with emotion our relationship with Hashem. That feels the reality that Hashem is the only existence. And right now we're dealing with a specific spiritual ailment. And that specific spiritual ailment is the man who has the dull heart. The person who has the dull heart. This is the rare individual who he studies about Hashem like he should. He understands what he studies. The ideas that he studies are able to be assimilated in his mind. And yet, he meditates on them and they do not move his heart. His heart remains numb. His heart remains dull. His heart remains unfeeling. There's a crisis here. So what are we doing in this situation? This is a specific prescription. And the prescription here is that we're shattering the self. We are crushing the animal soul. Now, of course, the person's real self is not their animal soul. But it's the self that they identify with on an everyday basis. The self that we're crushing is not our real self. It's our fake self. It's our facade. And we're crushing that fake self so we can access our truest self. So up until now, we looked one step after another. It started off with a statement from the Zohar that just like a log that won't catch fire needs to be splintered, a body that will not catch the light of the soul needs to be crushed. And of course, we don't mean the physical body. We mean the animal soul. And then we looked at different methods of crushing the animal soul. One was the very fact that the animal soul has the capability of lusting after something which is contrary to the divine will. And then we said, well, that may not be enough to bring a person to a state of humility. Because at the end of the day, they're not the one who created themselves with that kind of consciousness. That's the way they were created. So the author said, one second, let's move a little bit closer. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Let's look at the sins of your youth. You're perfect today, but what happened in your past? You created a blemish in a space where it was eternal. And true, the teshuva that you did was amazing, but for where you were then. It, it is possible that from where you are now, that blemish stands as a subtle, possibly, interception between you and Hashem. But from your higher level, your more delicate, sensitive place, your closer relationship, this now poses some type of intervention. And so that's where we got up to. And the Alter Rebbe did pause it and say that there's two reasons why you may feel numbness. One is because your teshuva wouldn't have been enough. But then there's another reason. And that is that, yes, your teshuva was enough. But in this situation, from heaven, love is being withheld to impel you to reach further and deeper within yourself so you can reach higher. It actually is a situation of love being withheld in the name of love. Love being withheld so that you can develop a deeper 
and closer relationship. And we looked at King David who said, my sin is always before me. And this was a man who did perfect teshuva. But nevertheless, he held his sin always in front of him to use it as an impetus to propel him further and closer in his relationship with Hashem. So that's where we got to up until now. And right now we are in the middle of page five. Here we are, and we're looking at a person who truthfully examines his past and yet cannot even find a sin. He has a dull heart and he's trying to bring himself to a state of humility. So he tried method one, and that was say that your animal soul can lust after something that's contrary to the divine will. Then he moved deeper and he looked at method two. He was searching for sins of his youth and he couldn't find any. And we're not talking about a liar. We're talking about somebody who's of that caliber that actually never sinned. And yet the altar is going to show him how he, even he could come to a state of humility by looking at his own actions. We're in the middle of page five. Even he who was innocent of the grievous sins of youth, but yet wants to attain a broken spirit. Should set his heart to fulfill the counsel of the Holy Zohar, to be a master of accounts. This means that he should do the spiritual accounting described as a master, a proprietor, to whom each set of figures represents either a profit or a loss that directly affects him, rather than as a servant, a hired accountant, and can view whatever bottom line eventuates with academic detachment. So the altar says, okay, now we're going to take advice from the Zohar, how you should conduct yourself so that you can reach the state of humility. He said, take the advice of the Zohar and be of the master of accounts. Hasidic teachers looked at the language of the Zohar and explained to us the depth of its words. The words, the terminology in the Zohar is mare de chashbina, the master of accounts. This is not just any person. This is somebody who is like the employer. This is the situation of the employer versus the situation of the employee. The employee might be a very hard worker. He might take the business very seriously. But at the end of the day, if he feels like he tried his hardest, then he's good. I did my best. I worked faithfully. And the business is faltering. It might pain him, but not to the same degree as it pains the owner of the business. The owner of the business, it's not just something that he does and then he moves it aside. The owner of the business invests his own life into it. It becomes him. He celebrates every victory, every profit he celebrates, every loss, no matter how small, brings him disappointment. The altar was saying, make it personal to you. And to illustrate this point of making it personal, there is a story, an analogy told of an illiterate man who couldn't read the letters that were coming to him from home. So what did he do? Every time a letter came to him from home, he would bring the letter to the town Malamid, the town school teacher, and the school teacher would read the letter out loud and the illiterate man would understand the contents of the letter. One time he gets a letter from home and the Malamid starts reading the letter and suddenly the simple man faints. 
Why did he faint? Because unfortunately, the letter had the news that his old father passed away. Now you would look at the situation and you say, hey, who's reading the letter? Who's the one who understands the letter? Who's the more educated person? Who's the one who understands the ideas better in the letter? It's the school teacher. But who's the guy who fainted? It was the simple man because it was his father. He fainted because it meant something to him. He took it personally. He was a master of accounts. And this is the rigorousness with which we are supposed to examine the things that is coming up, the ideas that are coming up, not just as, look, I tried my best, and hey, at the end of the day, I go to sleep, and I, I feel clean because I did my best. No, no, you're the owner of the business here. This is something personal to you. And as we move into this next section, let's understand a, a Kabbalistic idea, a Kabbalistic teaching. Kabbalah teaches us that in the supernal world, there are seven mansions, Hechalot, corresponding to the seven emotions. Through these mansions, from these mansions, are channeled divine energy to the created beings, commensurate with the energy of that Hechal, that mansion. For example, if a person thinks or speaks words of love, of attraction, of something that they're interested in, at that moment, Life energy is channeled to them through the medium of this mansion of chesed, kindness, which is where love is sourced. If a person is speaking words of rebuke or other such things that come from the, the realm of severity, then during those times, the life energy that comes to him is channeled through the heichal, the mansion of givura, Severity. Now, more specifically, there are seven mansions that are holy emotions. And in these holy mansions, there is abundant divine light and energy. Corresponding to these seven holy mansions of emotion, there are seven mansions of impurity. Seven mansions of the other side. And in these seven mansions, the divine energy is completely obscured and not sensed at all. Later on in Tanya, in Igeris HaTeshuvah, the Alter Rebbe writes that a person has the choice to choose where he's going to get his divine energy channeled from at any moment. Do you choose to get your divine energy from the Sitra Ahura, God forbid, from the other side? Or do you choose to have your energy channeled to you through the holy mansions. When a person chooses to get their life energy from the holy mansions, at that time they become a manifestation of the divine holy energy that is channeled through those mansions. If, God forbid, a person chooses their energy to come through the Sitra Ahura, during that time not only are they receiving their life energy channeled through these impure mansions, which of course have no life of their own. It's only divine energy that they have that's in a distorted fashion. At the same time that he is getting, gaining energy from them, he's actually giving them energy. He becomes a parasitic source of life for them and he feeds them. So with this idea in mind, let's move to the next thought. So what is this stock taking look like, right? He said, be of the master of accounts. This is the stock taking that you're supposed to be doing in this situation of a dull heart. 
דהיינו לעשייס חשבין עם נפשי, מכל מחשבייס והדיבורים המייסים שחלפו ועברו מיום היסא עד הים הזה. אם היו כולם מצד הקדושה, אי מצד הטומאה רחמנא ליצלן. This means that he should take stock with his soul of all his thoughts, utterances and actions that have come and gone since the day he came into being. And until the present day, were they all of the realm of holiness or of the realm of impurity, God forbid? You hear this exacting stock-taking the person is supposed to take? He's supposed to look at every word, every thought, every deed he ever did that he could remember since the day he's born. And then he says, were all of these from a holy place? And what does that mean? דהיינו, כל המחשבייס והדיבורים והמייסים אשר לא להשם המה ולרצייני ולאבי דסי. This latter realm, this latter realm and we're talking about when they came from the realm of impurity. So we're saying, did, did his thought, speech and action come from the realm of holiness or did they come from the realm of impurity? And what does it mean, did they come from the realm of impurity? This latter realm includes also any thought, utterance, or action that is not directed towards Hashem, His will, and His service, even when they are not actually sinful. Okay, so we're looking at this person who did a stock taking. He looks back at his youth and he says, I cannot find a sin. And to the altar, he says, one minute. Examine your every thought, your every word, your every deed. Did they all come from the realm of holiness or did they possibly come from the realm of unholiness? And when we say that they might have come from the realm of unholiness, we don't mean sin. We mean something of a different nature and that's what we're going to look at right now. Shazehu perish l'shain sitra achra kanal perikvav. Since this is the meaning of the term sitra achra, not necessarily evil, but simply the other side, the side, the realm that is not holy. Thus, anything that does not contain holiness belongs to the realm of impurity, as explained earlier in chapter 6. So in Kabbalah, it's very clear. There's Sitra de Kedusha, and then there's Sitra Achra. Sitra de Kedusha means the side of Kedusha, the side of holiness. And then there's Sitra Achra, which is an Aramaic term. In Hebrew, you would say Tzad Acher, in English, it is the other side. If it is not holy, automatically it is of the other side. Evil, the way we translate it in English, that's not just what it is. Evil as in something disgusting and loathsome and low down. It's not, that's already when it's a full-blown manifestation of evil. Evil at its core is a dissonance. Evil at, a, at its core is a breakaway from its source. We find the terminology of Ra, evil, in the Talmud. The Talmud describes an unstable wall, and it is called Kaisel Re'u'ah, the same word as Ra, an unstable wall. It's that first split, that first breakage from the true essence of all things. And in fact, when Shlomo HaMelech uses the term Re'us Ruach, a ruination of the spirit. The Zohar interprets that as Tiviru Derucha, a breakage of the spirit. Evil means a breakage, it's a split. When Adam and Eve first ate from the tree of knowledge and good and ev- of good and evil, what did they do at that point? They took evil from being an external experiment, 
I'm sorry, they took evil from being an external experience and they ingested it. They made it a part of themselves. And at that point, they suddenly had an awareness of their selves independent of their mission. Suddenly, they started to think of themselves. But who are yourself? Who are you at your core? You are a pure manifestation of the divine here to accomplish something special on a divine mission. As soon as your awareness starts thinking of yourself independent of that mission, that's the first split. That's the first breakaway. It doesn't have to be something vile. It doesn't have to be something terrible. It's just that first split of feeling separate from the divine. It could be a healthy and wholesome meal that you need for your health. And yet, if there's no divine intention, it is sourced in the Sitra Akhra, the realm of impurity. And again, these ideas sound like they're tough. They sound like, what? What about me? It's not tough. It's the truest form of the way reality is. These ideas are getting you in touch with your deepest space. It's like your arm saying, when am I going to have alone time? When is it going to be time for me? Oh no, the person is in trouble and the arm is in trouble. The arm is an expression of its life energy. A person shouldn't be feeling their arm. Not just shouldn't they be feeling pain in their arm, they shouldn't be feeling heaviness in their arms. They shouldn't be feeling arm. As soon as they start feeling a limb, it means that there's a lessening, a constriction of the, of the energy that gives it life. And so that's how it is with us human beings in our journey. The happiest space is to be in that seamless space where there's no independent self, sense of self, where all those castles that we've built in order to create vices, protect our turf, when we worry about what people are thinking about us, those castles that we build are prison. They're jail. They're inhibiting us, not allowing us to express the truest divine energy that is within us. And so that's what it means, the side of evil. That's what it means, the sitra akhara, the other side. Something that does not express its, the truth. Something that does not express the essence of all life. Something that does not express Hashem. Now, it is known that whenever a person thinks holy thoughts, he becomes during that time a chariot for the chambers of holiness once these thoughts originate, or more precisely, once their vitality originates. Becoming a chariot means that he becomes completely subservient to these hechalot to the same degree that a vehicle having no will of its own is completely subservient to its driver's will. When he meditates on the love of God, for example, he becomes a vehicle for the supernal chamber of love and so on. So that, let's look at this term, vehicle. Whenever one thing gives life energy to something else, that other thing that which receives the life energy then becomes a vehicle to the source of life energy. And a very simple example would be body and soul. The soul, and here we're talking about the vivifying soul, the one that gives life to the body. The soul energizes the body and the body is just a chariot to express the soul. The soul doesn't have to tell the body, okay, I like to move my hand now, okay, move, no. 
As soon as you want to move your hand, your hand moves because your body is an expression of your soul. It is a chariot to totally express the energy within it. The body becomes a chariot. In fact, the energy of the, the relationship of body and soul is even closer than chariot and rider. But for our purposes, we're just coming to understand that whenever one thing gives life energy to something else, that something else doesn't have an identity of its own. Instead, it becomes an expression of that which is channeling energy into it. So in our situation, when somebody thinks holy thoughts, during that time, remember, he is channeling energy from the holy mansions. He is channeling energy through those mansions of emotions, of holy emotions. When he is channeling the energy from those holy mansions, he becomes a vehicle for them. He becomes a manifestation of them. He becomes an expression of them. And unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Conversely, when he thinks impure thoughts, he becomes an unclean vehicle for the hechalot of impurity, whence, whence all impure thoughts originate. So he thinks a thought that's not pure. During that moment, he is deriving his life energy, channeling it through those mansions of impurity, and he becomes a vehicle for them. So too, with speech and action. When a person thinks, speaks, or does something that does not have divine intention, during those moments, he becomes a vehicle to express the energy of the Sitra Achra. And I'm going to tell you a story of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov used to travel around redeeming captives. You know, in Eastern Europe in the olden days, every landowner was like a miniature king. And if a guy didn't pay the rent on time, him and his family, they were all thrown in the dungeon. Now, then they couldn't ransom themselves because how could they make money to pay their way out of jail? So they would just rot there until somebody would find out about them and collect money for them and get them out of there. So the Baal Shem Tov once redeemed a man and his family right before Shabbat. So close to Shabbos, he said to them, come stay with me, there's no time for you to get back home. Come stay with me for Shabbos. So the family came to the Baal Shem Tov for Shabbos. They were so grateful. Friday night came, they all sat down for the meal. The Baal Shem Tov had students at the meal. And the Baal Shem Tov said to the man, tell me some news. And he said, tell you news? Being locked up in the dungeon all that time, there's not much news to share. And he said, okay, well then tell me something interesting. He said, you know what? I do have something interesting to tell you. So while we were there in the dungeon, right next to our cell, there was a cell occupied by vile men. So low down, coarse. They would weep and wail all week long. And we were so frightened by these vile people, we would kind of hide in our own corner and try to stay away from them. But the weirdest thing was that every single Friday, suddenly they would be full of glee. They would be dancing and shouting. And again, we were so frightened by these disturbing noises that we would hide in our corner and try to stay away from them. And this would happen week after week. Finally, this week I mustered up the courage and I asked one of them, tell me, why do you cry all week? And why are you so happy every Friday? And he said, listen, I wanna tell you something. We're not men at all. We're actually demons. And we get our energy 
from a certain pious man who lives in this city. Now he's very pious, and so he doesn't give us energy all week long. And so that's why we cry, because we're afraid we're going to expire out of existence. Now this man fasts every single week. And on Friday, he breaks his fast with a bowl of milk. So what do we do? We arrange somehow that to bump into one of the people in his family. They knock the milk over. He gets angry. And then when he gets angry, we get our energy. And so that's why every Friday we're so happy because we get energy from the man's anger. Now, this was happening week after week, and the man realized this is a problem. Every Friday, I lose my cool. I don't want to lose my cool. Every single Friday without fail, the bowl of milk gets knocked over. This Friday, I'm not doing it. I'm going to stay on top of my game. I don't want to lose my cool. I'm going to lock the milk in a safe. And this way, nobody's going to touch it. I'm going to come home from synagogue after my prayers. I'm going to drink my milk, and I'm going to keep my cool. So that's why we cried so much this week, because we thought, that's it. It's all over. He's not going to get angry, and we're not going to get energy. So one of us posed to be a woodchopper, and we knocked on the man's door, and we offered his wife wood at such a cheap price she couldn't refuse. And she asked her husband for permission for keys to the safe so she can get inside and get some money to pay us. And when she went into the safe, she knocked over the bowl, and the man was irked. And once again, we had so much energy, and that's why we laugh. Now... As the man finished his story, one of the students of the Baal Shem Tov fainted because he was the man who fasted all week. He was the man whose bowl of milk was knocked over every Friday. And of course, this was a divine message to him so he can understand that every time he's angry, he feeds energy to the forces of the other side. Now, the greater the person, the more energy they have. So while they're more tempting, they're a better source for the energy for the Sitra Akhara, they're also much less susceptible. It's like the best place for the thieves to steal are the wealthiest communities. But the wealthiest communities are the ones who have the most armed guards, the most alarms, the more fences set up, so it's much harder to steal. Usually robbers can't get in. But if a robber, God forbid, does get in, that's when he makes his most money. You know, he can go steal from the mediocre neighborhoods. They're not so well guarded, but they also don't have so much wealth. The same thing, a man of this caliber, who was so pious, who didn't even lose his cool all week, forget about whatever else he did, he was a great source of energy. He was a source of great wealth, except he was almost inaccessible. When he was accessible, the amount of energy that he was able to give was like a billion dollars. He was like the wealthiest man in town. He was so opportune. He was so amazing. He had a great source of energy for the Sitra Akhra. So this is story is to illustrate how when a person chooses to receive life energy from the Sitra Akhra, God forbid, they become a manifestation of that energy at that time, unfortunately, but they also become a source of energy for the Sitra Akhra. So the, the Alter Rebbe over here is advising the person Look at your thoughts, look at your speech, look at your action. Were they all at that time channeling energy through the divine mansions of holiness? Or was there a time when, even though it wasn't a sin, you didn't have divine intention? And that means that at that time you became a vehicle. You became a manifestation of the forces of impurity. If a person finds that within himself, they're suddenly humbled.
it's such a humbling, crushing feeling to think that they were a manifestation and a vehicle of the forces of impurity. Okay, well, what if that doesn't work? We're really moving step after step. What if a person examines his thoughts, his speech, and his action? We're talking about such a perfect person, right? And he genuinely cannot find a time where he didn't have divine intention. Now remember, if you always have divine intention, you are the freest person that there is. You don't have an ego holding you back. You are a person who lives at this higher space where you're constantly channeling divine energy. You're constantly expressing your divine mission. My father-in-law once flew on a carrier plane and he was telling us that it was so turbulent. There was so much turbulence because they fly on a much lower altitude. And he said, suddenly I realized that the higher you fly, the less turbulence you experience. And that's true in our spiritual journey too. You know, a lot of times when we're caught in our ego, when we're busy with petty things and we let silly things upset us, then we live in such a turbulent space because we're lower down and there's so much turbulence. But the closer a person is to Hashem, the more that they recognize that they're ultimately a manifestation of the divine and that they can be the expression of Hashem's energy in this world, the less turbulence they experience. So we're speaking of this person who has a dull heart, even though they can't find any sinful thoughts not just sinful, any incongruent thoughts, speech, or action. So the author says, well, then I want you to look at something else. Let him further consider his dreams in order to humble his spirit. For one may learn more about himself from his dreams than from his waking conscious thoughts. For the most part, they are vanity and an affliction of the spirit. So the author Rebbe says like this, you can't find any thoughts, speech, or action that weren't perfect, that didn't have divine intention. I want you to consider your dreams. What's there to consider about the dreams? Mishum she'ein nafshai lamaila. For his soul does not ascend heavenward during his sleep. The Midrash tells us like this. This soul fills the entire body. And when a person sleeps, the soul goes upwards and just a small amount of life energy from the soul is left within the body at that time. The Zohar in reference to that small amount of life energy calls it kista de chayusa, small measure of life. When the soul goes up at night, it's uninhibited by the physical body. It now has access to all these holy chambers in the higher worlds. And when the soul is seeing all these holy things in the supernal world, it affects the soul that is within the body and the person dreams of holy things. They have dreams where secrets of the Torah are revealed to them. If a person is not experiencing holiness in his dreams, this is a sign that his soul is not rising to the chambers of holiness during his sleep. As it is written in Tehillim, since it is written, Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Meaning in our context, whose soul shall rise heavenward while he sleeps to see and absorb matters of Torah and holiness, which will be in turn reflected in his dreams. And the next verse gives the answer. 
he that has clean hands and a pure heart, implying that the soul of one whose hands and heart are not pure does not ascend. And that is why his dreams are a patchwork of vanity and foolishness. So the fact that he is not experiencing holy dreams means his, mount, his soul did not go up on the mountain of the Lord, right? It says, who shall climb the mountain of the Lord? It's specifically he who has a pure heart and clean hands. If you're not ascending to these holy places, it means that in some way or, the, or another, you have a relationship with the Sitra Ahura. Relationship for the Sitra Ahura and this person who is so perfect doesn't mean that they're sinful and it doesn't even mean that they weren't having divine intentions. For him, it could mean that for where he is right now, he's not doing his best. For somebody else, for where he is right now, this is stellar. This is amazing. But for this person, how holy he is, where he is right now is not enough. And because it's not enough, he has a relationship with the Sitra Ahura. It means that his heart is not pure and his hands are not clean. And this should be a humbling thought. You go to sleep at night and you dream of things that are hevel, nonsense. Ur'us ruach, an affliction of the spirit. It doesn't just mean that silly things. It just means it's matters of the world, mundane affairs. Even if you're just dreaming about a grocery list, that's a sign that you're not accessing the chambers of holiness during your sleep. And if you're not accessing the chambers of holiness during your sleep, it means that there's something about you that is not a clean, that are not clean hands and is not a pure heart. I know this is very exacting, and we're also going to talk about dreams as far as what the Talmud tells us and halacha goes, because they're such an integral part of everybody's life that I don't think it would be fair to just close the subject without talking about dreams. Okay, so to the contrary, not only does this person not have access to the chambers of holiness while he sleeps, the Zohar tells us, the inon citrin bishin, Furthermore, those originating from the evil side come and attach themselves to him and inform him in his dreams of mundane affairs. And this is a key word over here. Not even bad things. All he's seeing in his dreams is mundane affairs. And that's why it's even possible for somebody to have some type of dreams. A simple person, a person who hasn't been elevated to the realms of holiness. And they might even be true dreams of the future. But they're not coming from the holy side. It's coming from the side of unholiness. And then it can get even worse. And sometimes mock him and show him false things and torment him in his dreams and so on. As stated in the Zohar, Vayikra, page 25a and b, see there discussed at length. So sometimes a person will have dreams that are scary, that are frightening. And why is he having these scary dreams? Because the other side is showing him false things in order to torment him. They cling to his soul and they show him scary things. All of this is a sign that his soul is not going to the higher places. We thus see from the Zohar that one may evaluate himself by studying the content of his dreams. Thereby he can humble his spirit even if he finds himself free of sin 
and in this way he may crush the Sitra Ahura within him, as explained above. So let's talk about dreams. A lot of people give attribute extreme amount of importance to their dreams. And in fact, we shouldn't be. The Talmud tells us a fascinating story. There was a man whose father passed away. And besides for the fact that he was so distressed over his father's passing, he was also distressed that he didn't know where his father left his inheritance. And he has a dream. In the dream, he finds out. In the dream, he hears that your father left you such and such amount of money as it, and it is in such and such place. The dream also tells him that that money that your father left is Meiser Shani. Meiser Shani is money that was put aside and it has a special halachic status. It has to be spent in Jerusalem only for food and drink and for anointing. It has to be used in a state of purity. It's not just money you can spend. It's not spending money. It's consecrated money that has to be used in a specific place with a specific purpose. Now he goes to the place where his dream informed him and guess what? The money is there and it's in the exact amount that they informed him of in his dream. Now he has a problem. Can he use this money or is it my Shani? So he goes to the Chachamim, he goes to the sages, and they tell him, The words that we have in dreams don't affect at all. They make no difference. Use the money. Have it as spending money. Don't consider it Maeser Shani. So you understand that the money was in fact in the exact amount in his dream. It was in the exact place that his dream informed of. And even though the dream told him, this is Maeser Shani, the sages told him, you don't have to worry about it. We don't take the words of dreams seriously. Now, the story is told of Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, one of the greatest Jewish minds. The emperor loved spending time with him because he was so brilliant. So he said to Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, they say you Jews are so wise. Tell me, what will I see in my dream tonight? So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania told the emperor, you will dream that the Persians capture you. They will take you captive. They will make you herd unclean animals with a golden rod. And all day long, the emperor thought about what Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania told him. And lo and behold, what did he see in his dream that night? That the Persians took him captive, that they made him herd unclean animals with a golden rod. The Talmud further tells us a story about Shmuel, that, that, that King Shabur of Persia said to him, They say you Jews are so wise. What will I see in my dream tonight? And he said, you will see that you were captured by the Romans and they will force you to grind date pits in a golden mill. And all day long, King Shabor thought about him having to grind date pits in a golden mill by the Persians. And what did he dream of that night? Exactly that. Basically, what you think of during the day is what you dream about at night. It's further told about Shmuel, the Talmudic sage, that every time he had a bad dream, he would say, paraphrasing the words of the Navi Zechariah, Dreams speak nonsense. He didn't attach any importance to his bad dreams. If he had a good dream, he would say the same line, but in a questioning tone this time. He would say, Do dreams really speak nonsense? And then he would quote from the Torah how Hashem will sometimes appear to a prophet in a dream. I speak to him in a dream. So he would give importance to his good dream. And in general, 
dreams follow their interpretation. So if a person has a disturbing dream, just get it out of your mind. If you can't get it out of your mind, give it a positive interpretation. Now, there was a man who wrote a letter to the Rebbe about his dreams and he wanted to know interpretations. And the Rebbe said, stop interpreting your dreams. The dreams that we take seriously are only the, the dreams of a person who has such a pure caliber. Everybody else, what they dream about is just nonsense. Don't take your dreams seriously. Some people are constantly haunted by dreams, so the Rebbe gave them specific advice. They should check their tefillin. They should check their mezuzahs. They should see if they hurt somebody's feelings. And if they did, in that situation, the Rebbe advised the woman that she should go to a basin of three people, three men. She should go in front of three Jews. And she should say that I regret if I ever offended the dignity of any Jewish person, and so this way, this shouldn't come to haunt her. But in general, it's important not to give importance to dreams, not to pay attention to dreams. Why do we have dreams that are silly? Because unfortunately, we're not perfect. And because we're not perfect, so we don't have access to these chambers of holiness during our sleep. And instead, sometimes we're haunted and tormented by the Sitra who tell us lies just to torment us. So instead of taking them Personally, instead, fill your mind with holy thoughts during the day. Don't think of silly things and nonsense. And then you can feel comfortable that you won't be haunted by dreams. And if you are, just throw them out of your mind. Okay. So there's a story of the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Shalom Dovber, and this very egotistical, pompous man who was trying to attract followers to himself came to him complaining. He said, you know, an angel came to me in a dream and told me I am supposed to be a Rebbe, that I am supposed to be a master. And when I told the people of my town that they need to follow me because an angel in my dream informed me that I am their leader, they don't listen to me and they will not follow me. So the Rebbe Rashab looked at him and said, listen, the next time that angel comes to you in a dream and tells you that you are meant to be the leader, tell him, don't come to me. Instead, go to my followers. And tell them that they are supposed to be your followers. <laughs> so anyway, that was just a humorous remark as far as dreams go. And let's wrap up what we said until now. We're looking at this person who's trying to come to a deep sense of humility. And it's so hard for him. It's so hard for him because he's really perfect. He can't find sins of his youth. And the next thing for him to examine is his every thought, word, and action. Were each of these with divine intentions or were some of them lacking divine intention? If they were lacking divine intention, then at that time, the person was a chariot for the forces of impurity. And if a person cannot even find that within themselves, then they should consider one more thing. They should consider their dreams. When you go to sleep at night, do you dream holy things? Do you have access to the secrets of the Torah? during that time? If not, then look at the words in Tehillim. Who is going to ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who will be in his holy place? He who is of clean hands and a pure heart. If you are not ascending the mountain of the Lord during your sleep, there is a sign that at least on some subtle level, you are not of clean hands and a pure heart. And that thought alone should humble the person, should crush the person. And again, why are we crushing the person? 
We're not crushing the person because a person is supposed to feel lowly. We're not crushing the person to make a person feel inherently worthless. We're trying to get the person in touch with their utter worthiness, with their deepest truth, with their preciousness. And in order to do that, we have to crush that fake self. We have to crush that superficial self. We have to crush that external husk that will not allow the person to get in touch with the light of the divine. That even though they meditate on ideas of Hashem, even though they understand those ideas, still their heart is not moved. Still they don't feel it. And so they have to crush that husk that smothers their heart, that obscures the divine light. And this way, they are now open to sensation. So that's where we got until now, and I'm going to open up for questions and discussion. I've done some some Jungian work and Jungian study, and how this and what you were talking about really brought all of that to mind, and the, the whole the whole concept of dr- the dream world and what the importance of it and what we extract from it and how we how we blend that into our day life and, and extract meaning from it. So it's something to think about because it's very different. It's a different concept coming from, uh, from, from what you were talking about tonight, so today. So thank you. So you're saying like- that from the Jungian perspective, it's, there's about a lot of importance attributed to dreams. Yes, tremendous, tremendous importance. Yes, and it's always going back to the dream world, always going back. And there's um, there are different levels to it, of course, just like uh, as we're studying with anything, that you start off at a certain level and then you learn more and more. And presumably your dreams are are not necessarily getting more intense, but the, you begin to recognize the symbolism in them and the threads that go through. So it's... it's um, now, would it's you say true. that it's not necessarily a contradiction, but it's, it revolves around the same idea that what a person thinks about, even almost to their self that they don't want to admit, is what will sometimes appear to them in their dream? Cause that's Absolutely. Right. So that's also what we're saying here, that what you think of during the day is what you will dream about at night. So if you want to clean up your act as far as your night experience goes, then you need to clean up your act as far as your everyday right. self. But I, I think um, it's the idea that it's a sing, it's a signal. Um, it, it's not, it's not connected with Hashem or necessarily a higher being. But it's simply. Um, but when we read into it in in the Jewish context, there, it's it's so much more complex and deeper and connected to so many other things it connected to a totality as opposed to in the Freudian schema of dreams that it's um, you learn from it and go forward but on a whole different level this is it's, it's interesting to compare it and it just came to me so I'll think about it and I thank you for it thank you so much Esther and I really am interested to hear what you're going to come up with after you think about it so if you don't mind sharing that with me I would appreciate it Sure, see me in about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a question Yes, sure, Cheryl. So, when, so um, I, I thought that the, the soul goes up to get nourished at night. So, um, but it seems to me like, you know, if, if you're not at that level, 
where you're going, your soul can go to those higher levels, the Sitra Aqua is going to interfere with your soul getting recharged. So you're bringing up a very interesting point. From what I understand is that there's two aspects here. The fact that the person is not experiencing those holy visions during their nighttime experiencing, during their nighttime sleep. So that means that there's a certain aspect of them that is unclean. On the other hand, when we go to sleep, our neshama does go up and there is a certain recharge that happens, even if we're not accessing those divine secrets. And I want to read to you a prayer that a lot of people neglect to say because it's in a small print of the Siddur at the end of Kriya Shema Shalamita. And it's about asking Hashem to purify and cleanse our soul and get rid of all the filth that clung to it during the day due to our actions. Let me pull out a Siddur from here. One second. Okay, here we go. So this is the end of Kriya Shema Sha'al Hamita, okay? Bedtime Shema. Oh, by the way, that's another one of the Rebbe's advice to somebody who was constantly getting uh, scary dreams. The Rebbe told them to be careful about how they say Shema before they go to bed at night. So here's this prayer, and it says, Rebbein HaAilamin, Master of the Worlds, Ata Varasa Ailamcha Bertzain HaAtayv. You have created the world, you have created your world with your goodwill. According to what arose in your supernal thought. Describing how you created the earth and everything in it, the, the heavens and everything in it, the earth and everything in it, the person on earth you created. And you blew into his nostrils a soul of life. So that he can come to recognize your greatness, and your glory, and you give life to every, all. Because you are the soul to all souls, and the life for all life. And you, it is you, Hashem, my God. I behold, I entrust my. Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama, those are three levels of soul that are invested within our body. In your pure and trustworthy hand. And it is you, Hashem, my God. You will purify them. You will cleanse them. From any impurity and malady that have become stuck to them. Through my bad deeds. And you will return them to me with quietude. Quietude, another word for that. So I think it's more. Benachas is like with, with peace. And I'm trying to find a different word, but I can't. With peace and with quietude. And with security. And then. Because you hear the, the um, prayers of the Jewish people with peace. So. When we go to sleep, we're asking Hashem, look, we know that during the day our neshama got dirty. We know that during the day, because of our actions, some filth clung to them, clung to our soul. So I'm, I'm going to sleep right now. I'm giving my soul to you. Please, in your pure and trustworthy hand, cleanse it. Turn, and return it to me quietly, serenely, securely. 
So there are those two aspects. There is like, you know, essentially how we behave every day. And due to our behavior, we don't have access to those higher realms. But nevertheless, every time we go to sleep, we really do entrust our soul to Hashem. And it is the Midrash that speaks about how the soul goes up at night, says, and from when it goes up, it draws life. So it does draw life every time it goes up. It's just to what extent? And to what extent are we aware of the experience? So yes, the Sitra Achora does unfortunately grab hold of the soul and torment it and, and make fun of it and mock it. But at the same time, our Neshama does go to Hashem. It's just that it's not experiencing that level of purity and, and seeing the divine during that time, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And then is- oh, one second. Let me put this on. One, se- one second. I'm- okay, there we go. Sheila question with dreams this whole dream thing so it's not really telling I, I understand that that your stories were about don't give as much significance to dreams but I mean but some dreams do really warn us about things in life I mean I've certainly had that experience I had a very specific experience with a dream that was very protective was actually, I mean, it sort of foretold something that would happen and it was very protective so that my actions would be the right actions when, when it happened. Wow. I mean, it was really significant dream. Wow. It was a, it was stunning, sort of. Wow. Yeah, so I guess from that point on, I was sort of like, I mean, most of the dreams are just anxiety. Right. But- it's important to know that. It's important to know that even if somebody did have an, a, a significant dream at one point in life, and then because of that experience, they start attributing importance to every dream. Don't do it. Most dreams are nonsense. And if they scare you, remember it's just the forces of impurity trying to torment you and don't give them their way because they want you to be down and out. Forget about it. Just move on. Think of happy things and have happy dreams. Well, thank you again. It's beautiful today. Thank, thank you, you so much, Sheila. Okay, bye, everybody. Have a great day. Good to see you all. Love you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.